Lewis, the foreigner. I'm not from here. I have my own customs. Look at my crazy passport. Let me tell you something. 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 Revit Bratsia Bolelshikov. It's time once again for two differing generations of professional wrestling fans to battle forth with only their words and their wits in a steel cage of debate as they try to be the first one to make the knockout blow and escape into the wide world and hopefully interact with a girl once in a while. Yes, it's let me tell you something. I am your co-host Lorcan Mullen and with me as always is the Sato to my Tanaka the Jacques to my Pierre, the Boris Zukov to my Nikolai Volkov, Simon Cross. Simon, how you doing, mate? Oh, I'm doing great. I always thought of myself as uh, the Rob Conway to your... Uh... Oh, yes, <laughs> yeah. that would have been a good one. Hopefully, as the opening has shown you, yes, I have been on Google Translate. And also, that should give you a clue as to what we'll be talking about this episode, because we are going to be talking about a fixture in the professional wrestling world for as long as there's been men in trunks rolling around on the ground. It is the foreign menace, the depiction of the foreign menace. A term that's evolved and changed over the years, and I was going to build up to this one, but you were just saying before we recorded, Simon, that you saw something for the first time as a wrestling fan in your research just before the episode started. Do you want to tell the world what you just saw, and then maybe we'll lead into it as uh, the episode progresses? But just let you know, listeners, that this was the first time Simon Cross had ever seen what he's about to describe. This, this, um, yeah, well, as as some of you may or may not know, we are both uh, WWE Network subscribers in one way or the other. Although, weirdly, because I'm paying... Uh, for an American channel. Mine only comes at 7.63 a month. Yeah, the good old unblock us. <laughs> Dig those savings, kids. But uh, as part of my research, I knew a little bit, I knew a fair bit about the Mohamed Hassan character, and there was a certain angle which didn't reach UK shores initially. Um, more on that later as to why. <clears throat> but it's basically a match between Davari, uh, Mohamed Hassan's, I think, assistant, Lackey? Yeah, we'll go for Lackey. And The Undertaker. And after the match, five masked men in um, balaclavas and combat trousers rushed the ring. And it, it gets, I guess the term would, it gets a bit ISIS-y. Yes. It gets very ISIS-y very quickly. Very ISIS-y. They, they, were, they were trendsetters in many ways, the Davari <laughs> and Hassan. Maybe that's where they went to after The Undertaker last rode. After The Undertaker committed a last ride on um, Hassan through the stage to kill off not only that angle, but a form of pro wrestling that had been a constant for well before we were into wrestling. And that is to portray 
the foreigner as an evil, evil person that the good old hometown, home country boy has to get rid of for the good of their cause. And this is something that's lasted for decades and decades and decades. I'm sure back in the day when it was George Hackenschmidt and all of those, I think one of them was German. And so they were wrestling, they were wrestling foreigners from an early age. But it should also be pointed out that this is not exclusively an American wrestling thing, but we'll go into that as time goes on. What do you think is the enduring appeal, Simon, of a foreigner? And we have it now with Rusev. Rusev seems to be almost, to me, like a postmodern variant on it. There seems to be a lot more of a tongue-in-cheek to it than there ever was before. Would you agree with me on that? He is the evolution of the foreign menace. He is the new breed of foreign menace. I definitely agree with that. Um, Because I think for many of our foreign menace characters, if you strip away the gimmick... There isn't a wrestler. There isn't a good wrestler there. Mm. This is not the case with Rusev. I mean, there there are one or two notable exceptions to the rule I've just brought out there. Rusev is one of them. Rusev is one of those people who would have done just fine without uh, being this foreign menace character. And I think because the world evolved in such a way that uh, borders are broken down, we have more access to the internet and other people's goings on, he's had to become a bit more tongue-in-cheek. He's had to become a bit more weird, like pantomime, almost, uh, in the way that some of the things are done. I think for about six or seven years, the WWE has wanted to do the Ivan Drago character. I Actually, to be fair, I think ever since Rocky Four came out and it is by far the most successful of the rocky films the wwe has wanted to do ivan drago and i think rusev is the first time they've been able to do it successfully they had a few aborted attempts in the past uh the great rumor was that um and whether it is rumor or not was that nikita koloff was who vince mcmahon was desperate to have face hulk hogan at wrestlemania 2 if he'd been able to get him out of the nwa at the time that's the rumour. I don't know how much that's true or if it's just wishful thinking on fans sort of retro-booking WrestleMania 2 so that it doesn't involve King Kong Bundy. Um, the closest wrestling has come to the giant wrestling baby. <laughs> Ivan Drago is the classic template of the foreigner and it's not only the WWE that have wanted to tell that story. Do you know who's also wanted to tell that story? Dana White wanted to tell that story with Mirko Krokop. I know he's Croatian but to Americans, to, to anyone outside of the Baltic states and it's Russia, all they're the all the same. He so wanted to do a Randy Couture against Mirko Krokop heavyweight championship match, and he never got the chance to do it because Krokop suddenly started getting beaten all the time. Well, Dana White is quite clever at doing that in terms of he does uh, the Independence Day weekend um matches i mean one the last independence day i can't remember the name of the guy but he went over clean on the foreign import trouble is with ufc of course pro wrestling um spoiler alert ufc is real hulk hogan (laughs) would dispute that (laughs) god hulk hogan's opinions on anything but hulk hogan even hulk hogan's opinions on hulk hogan are not worthwhile hulk hogan's opinions on hulk hogan are probably the least reliable opinions on hulk hogan you can get Oh, but my key point is, um, 
UFC loves the foreign menace. Everyone loves the foreign menace. It's not a wrestling thing, this. This is an entertainment thing. They're trying to book the foreign menace, in a way, to Brazilian fans with Conor McGregor. If they can get the Conor McGregor... If they could have got the Conor McGregor-Jose Aldo fight in Brazil, they would have done it. I mean, I think it's going to be in Las Vegas. But to Brazilian fans, he's the mouthy Irishman. And to Irish fans, it's... I guess it's less the foreign menace with the Irish fans as much as it is the... um the hometown hero. And yeah. that is one that will, again, we'll put a pin in this, but one of the great evolutions of the foreign menace storyline was the Hart Foundation, USA versus Canada. Oh, well, USA versus the Commonwealth, in a way, we can say, in 1997. <laughs> well, Canada took all the help it could get, to be fair. Yes, yes, absolutely. But the Foreign Menace was a fixture for decades and decades and decades. Um, Fritz von Erich, the father, the patriarch of the legendary von Erich clan, made a killing for years as the Nazi pro wrestler. And that's what he was. And then they were able to change the von Erichs into the hometown boys of Dallas, Texas. And then they're taking on Foreign Menaces like the Great Kabuki and and so on. Um, so... And and the foreigner is an interesting thing in America because they can both be the evil foreigner because America is a country so renowned for its patriotism, jingoism. Um, It can get ugly, as uh, anyone who had to purchase freedom fries in Washington, D.C. for a number of years can agree. But it's... um, It's it's something that evolves... It's something that can be... uh, That's malleable. It can be changed because... For the WWF in the 60s and 70s, their bread and butter was the first and second generation immigrants. Bruno Sammartino was born in Italy. He was an immigrant. Um, Pedro Morales, he was Puerto Rican, I believe. Um, And uh, you had Antonio Rocca from Argentina. Hulk Hogan himself is... um, It's an Irish name, and he was called Hulk Hogan by... Vince McMahon Sr. because he wanted to make him the great Irish wrestler and he even wanted to dye his hair red at one point. That's true. I mean, um, Hulk Hogan is one of the famous Dublin O'Hogans. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, his mustache looks a lot like Seamus's, so I'll I'll, I'll give you that strenuous link. I mean, yeah, but I mean, but I think Balea, Balea? Yes, that's not a very Irish name. It's not a very Irish name, but I think there is some distant Irish heritage there. The thing with Hulk Hogan uh, against the foreign menace, and you will see a lot of Hulk Hogan against the foreign menace, is he embodies that feverent level of jingoism that you were alluding to uh, in your previous point? He portrayed the Reagan-era perception of America, when it was the great invincible superpower, when it was America v. Russia. Um, and they never really gave him a great Russian rival to go against. He had a few with Nikolai Volkov at the start of his run, but the less time you want your main guy to spend with Nikolai Volkov, the better, really. Um, he did have a few runs with foreigners. I mean, Andre the Giant was French, but I don't think... It, that wasn't really USA versus France. Um, that was more just uh, the great powerhouse of wrestling for the previous 25 years, suddenly turning heel. See, I'd say Andre the Giant is one of the great... I mean, Andre the Giant had a great career. There's no disputing that. But it is one of the greatest chances of a foreign menace squandered that they ever had. I mean, <clears throat> Andre 
according to some rumours that may not be true about him, him his, his actions on um, tour buses in, on Japanese tours, didn't have a very um, encompassing view of other races. Yes. So you could have <laughs> I don't turned know up the volume to. on himself. I don't know if you want to bring that to attention in the public sphere. You know, that's kind of similar to Jake the Snake Roberts having Don't Do Drug public um, PSA. Uh, you know, there's certain things you don't want to bring to people's life. But if, oh my God, if Andre the Giant had actually been Russian, well, if he'd been Russian, he wouldn't have allowed to have been a good guy throughout the 60s and the 70s and the 80s and the WWF, so it wouldn't have meant anything. But if he was Russian against the American Hulk Hogan, they could have sold out the Silver Dome twice. Probably at that stage in, in American history. Um, but the foreign menace, it's, it's kind of like um, there's two easy heels to run your top babyface against. And they're the monster heel and the foreign heel. There's really no easier storyline. And it's not just in um, America that that's the case. In Britain, you had Kendo Nagasaki and you had Giant Haystacks. Giant Haystacks was really the embodiment of the fear of the Irish gypsy. That's what Giant Haystacks was meant to be, and and Big Daddy was the good old British bulldog, not the British bulldog, but he was the Winston Churchill-like figure who could take down the dirty Irishman. I think with those two examples, um, Kendo Nagasaki and, of course, uh, the gypsy linkage with Giant Haystacks, you've... You've highlighted a circle you missed out on the Venn diagram there. And I know I love Venn diagrams and love mentioning them. You've got your monster heel. You've got your foreign heel. You've also got your mysterious heel. Mm. And very often not foreign heels will be mysterious heels. But sometimes they'll just be foreign monsters and there's no mystery about them. It's just they're here. They're from another country. They don't like yours. They're going to mess stuff up. Mm. But Kendo Nagasaki especially, I mean... That he was the whole point to hit him. One of the things, major reasons he was a heel is because we don't know his motivations. We don't know who he is, what he's doing. He used that like, mysticism, that smoke and mirrors. Literally, he would use smoke in his entrances. It was as high tech as British wrestling entrances were, but they still made the crowd react with the little fireballs and the flames and uh, his accompaniments and Peter Green. A great artist who designed the Sgt. Pepper's cover. He was an artistic liaison to Kendo Nagasaki in, in creating this character and the image and the suits and the samurai. And, and you're right, there was the mystery to him, which they blew with him unmasking for a while. Um, but yeah, they, that was they weird. quickly went back on themselves there. Um, so the foreign menace is not a changing thing, and uh, but it's the different perceptions of menace, I suppose. Because... The reason the Japanese wrestling became a thing was through the work of Ricky Dozan in the 50s and 60s. Ironically, he's Korean, but he brought professional wrestling to Japan and they would bring in the American wrestlers, more often than not the American wrestlers, and he would beat them all because they'd pay them tons. And that was to rebuild the image of Japan after World War II. And that tradition carried on through to the 70s when Antonio Inoki and Giant Baba took over and you had the Gaijin likes of Bruiser Brody, the Funks, um, Stan Hansen, Abdullah the Butcher and it's carried on uh, into the 90s where you had Scott Norton but then and 
You had Scott Norton in the heavyweight division, Big Van Vader, Wild Pegasus in the junior heavyweights division. And then into the modern era, you have the Bullet Club, which is another variant of that, the, the foreign invading army. But again, it, it became less about nationalism more than it did, because all Japan shows could be headlined by Stan Hansen and Bruiser Brody taking on the Funks. So it wasn't that they hated them, it's just they were perceived as sort of the best that America had to offer, and it was Japan trying to get one up on them. And Tiger, uh, Tiger Jeet Singh, Andre the Giant, Killer Khan, all those people made a fortune in Japan playing the Gaijin, the equivalent of the Japanese foreign menace. I think the whole uh, Japanese honour system is being inverted with the Bullet Club uh, in terms of they're cheating. They shouldn't be winning like this. This is wrong. This is a front to our style. So it's another layer they've added to the Foreign Menace because the Foreign Menace, your Stan Hansons, your Bruiser Brodies and your Funks would typically hit strong style. I mean, that's one of the reasons they were liked so much. They were strong style wrestlers from America, who just happened to wrestle near enough the same style. But your Bullet Club, with their sort of uh, cheap, late 90s WCW kind of finishes mm-hmm. sometimes, have kind of offended the Japanese way of life of wrestling. And I think that's another layer they've added to their heel act, which I think just makes it so much better. It's a very risky proposition that New Japan have embarked upon with the Bullet Club because the amount of interference that they do, the amount of screwy finishes, that was antithetical to what Japanese wrestling was for the longest period. Actually, with the first wave of the Gaijins, the Bruiser Brodies and the Stan Hansons, too often the strong booking and the in the intransigence in negotiation of the likes of... Um, Bruiser Brody meant that you'd have so many count-out finishes and double count-out finishes and disqualification finishes. And Ababa and Inoki put the kibosh on that um, in the 80s so that for the longest time in Japanese wrestling, you would not see a count-out finish, a disqualification finish. And you're still not seeing them that frequently with the Bullet Club, but there's definitely more chicanery going on than there ever was before. Oh, it's definitely a case of them being up to no good. Uh, and it's like, oh, look, them, they're bringing their style of wrestling with this cheating to win uh, atmosphere into what they're doing. <clears throat> and on the cheat to win point, uh, to seamlessly transition from the Bullet Club, it's very interesting with foreign characters that aren't always heels, how quickly cheating to win comes, goes from being a good thing to being a bad thing. Uh, greatest example, Eddie Guerrero, as a face. Oh, look, he's cheating. Oh, look, he's, he's used to oh, that stupid do. heel. Oh, you rascally scamp. When he's a heel, it's like, what are you doing? Well, why are you doing this? Like, it, it just makes no sense. Alberto Del Rio is a great example. They tried to push him near enough in the mirror image way, in terms of some aspects of his character as Eddie Guerrero. And one of my greatest point is when he beat the big show by taping his in the last man standing match by taping his feet to the bottom rope <laughs> same way that john cena beat batista in the last man standing match both of them faces not really a clean win though yeah those are very strange examples of booking uh, with baby faces using uh, being crafty and and 
and not really getting a comprehensive victory, which really is what the last man standing gimmick should be. But unfortunately, they that's more points towards the modern booking system where cage matches, last man standing matches, street fights are rarely the feud cappers anymore. They're just another stop on the station. It's just as likely that the feud will either peter out or it will end with just a one-on-one match or a tag team match where they'll both shoot off into a different feud instead of them being the feud capper where the hero can victoriously knock the bad guy out and give them a taste of their own medicine. The rare exception with that in modern booking, I think, is still the foreign menaces, though, because throughout the years, the foreign menace always gets vanquished at the end. It's the most pantomime of booking. The, the entire booking of Rusev has been booked to him losing, him getting pinned or made to submit, which, as we speak, looks like it's finally going to be John Cena that does that. If it had been me in charge of booking, and maybe this is still what they were doing, I would hold off until Roman Reigns. I think... Um, are you alluding to hit that the... I know we don't like to date these things. No, um, at, at conversations. But are you alluding to his match at Fastlane? Because I am willing I think to... he might win that, and then Cena will win at WrestleMania. See, I think Cena wins by DQ mm. at Fastlane, and the WrestleMania match is a street fight, because mm. there's no gimmick match yet on mm. the WrestleMania card. It's all looking like straight matches. Well, and there's that's, usually that's... one outlandish gimmick that makes the card. Yeah, I suppose you're right. We, we, it's, it's always foolish to talk ahead of time, because if people listen to a, a past episode, you mentioned that you predicted that Kane would get eliminated by the bunny at the Royal Rumble. So, <laughs> that's oh, All right, yeah. No one could have called what happened there. <laughs> uh, grimly, as it came closer and closer, you really could call it. But, anyway. Um, the Japanese... So, whilst the portrayal of... The, the Japanese have had towards their gaijins has been more of a great rival. The portrayal of the Japanese in American wrestling for the longest time would be defined by two words. Pearl Harbor. Borderline racist. Well, borderline racist um, is the subtext of Pearl Harbor. For many, many decades, a Japanese, sometimes really a Japanese wrestler, more often than not, a Hawaiian or a Samoan that they just say is Japanese... Well, <laughs> Pearl Harbor, the territory's top babyface, attacking them from behind and then running away. And then the babyface gets his comeback after the salt's been thrown in the eyes and all of the other stereotypes of Japanese wrestling, of, of the Japanese, have been put through the ringer until they can finally be beaten. Very often, like I said, the Japanese would be either Japanese-Americans, like Mr. Fuji was, or they'll be Hawaiians or Samoans, like most famously Rodney Anoahi, aka Yokozuna. That's it's really weird the way America does it only with Japanese wrestlers, never with never with any other kind of foreign wrestler. But they seem to attack their traditions a lot more. I mean, sumo is enshrined in Japanese culture; it is done a certain way, and yet the sumo the sumos. And yes, that was a quote mark for those keeping count. <laughs> <laughs> the sumos that uh, come over to uh, Japan, like from Japan to um, the WWF, or the WWE or WCW. I don't think WCW ever really ran a sumo gimmick. I don't think they ran a sumo gimmick, but most famously they have maybe the greatest Japanese 
wrestler run of all time in the modern era when the great Muta had his phenomenal run, which started to change the perception of the Japanese wrestler with American audiences, particularly with the more hardcore wrestling fans. Mm. Um, but my point was that there just seems to be an assault on their traditions and methods. But and you definitely saw this with the Russians. With the Russians, it was politics. It was always politics. It was never their way of life. They did. They would always ha- encourage the fans to, bo- the, to boo throughout Nikolai Volkov singing the Russian national anthem, and they're doing it now with um with the introduction of uh, the the Russian national anthem and Boris and uh, Lana in going on. But again, I mean, I, I get where you're coming from. Maybe it's because the culture of Japan feels so much more foreign than the American. Because an American actor can play a Russian. A Russian actor can play an American. An American... Uh, uh, now, this is going... Of course, there are Japanese-Americans out there, but Tom Cruise could never play a Japanese person. When Sean Connery sort of did it in You Only Live Twice, it was very dodgy. I think you read my mind now. I was just about to bring up that, the fact that Sean Connery has played both a Russian and a Japanese man. But the, the Japanese traditions, the salt throwing, the geishas, the, the language that has no root in, in Latin or anything like that. Um, there's very... Although, when you look at Japan, I keep meaning to travel to Japan because their culture fascinates me because it seems to take most of Eastern culture and then exaggerate Western culture in such, you keep wondering, are they taking the piss, or or is this just because they will appropriate English words when they didn't have an American, when they didn't have a Japanese equivalent? I mean, I I have my Super J Cup '94 video that I watched so many times um, back when I was a student, and it's so fascinating to watch the Japanese uh, like uh, a video tra- a trailer to a Jushin Thunder Liger video. And it's Hansamaras in Jushin Dandalaga, Sindamarato. Now on sale! <laughs> That's never happened the other way around. We haven't appropriated. I mean, obviously, we appropriate bits of, of French uh, and a, a bit of German, Schadenfreude, and Come See, Come Sir, things like that. But we've never appropriated a Japanese phrase or, or, or a Russian phrase, to be fair. But it's that, it's that exoticism, it's that mysticism, like you say, that the Japanese had the. I mean, obviously, during the Cold War, there was always that mystery of the Russian, but people knew Russian-Americans, people knew German-Americans. Again, outside of Hawaii, there weren't that many Japanese-Americans. Well, the Mexican menace compared to the Japanese menace, it's a really different type of menace entirely. As in, rather than the mysterious menace that uh, the Oriental characters were, it's more... A, there's more of a socio-economic element. The invaders from the south coming over here, taking our low-paid jobs, not always legally, not always with a passport. I think one of the favourite cheap heat Mexican jokes is when they're in New Mexico to refer to it as North Mexico, mm-hmm. or when there's a Mexican tag team to call them uh, the Gardeners, Jose and Hose B. Yeah, something equally awful. I think the difference with the Mexican compared to the Japanese is probably one of status, is the argument I would make, where the Japanese were seen as America's equal militarily and economically, whereas Mexicans seem to have been perceived as inferior in their economic status, 
the wealth of their people, and that's why, of course, they come across the border for lower-paying jobs. And so, because of that, I don't know that the Mexicans have ever been as menacing as, say, a Japanese or a Russian would be. Conversely, in Mexico, the American foreign menace can be very threatening and very... um, uh, intimidating. I mean, with the, the relationship that Mexicans have with Americans are similar to the relationships that Scottish people have with English people, Welsh people have with English people, Irish people have with English people, New Zealanders have with Australians, and Canadians have with Americans, I suppose. It's more, um, I think that's more the foreign nuisance than the foreign menace. <laughs> if you understand where I'm well, I understand you're alienating a large part of our Celtic market, but yeah. Well, no, I, I understand why the English annoy the Celtic people so much. I mean, I would love it if ICW did a Scotland versus England feud. That could cause damn near riots in Glasgow if they do it right. Um, but with the Mexicans, I think also the Mexicans have very frequently been painted as more of a positive light, even back in the early, early days of the foreign menace in the territorial era. The Chavo Guerrero Sr. was a big hero in the Portland area where he had his legendary feud with Roddy Piper. I think that was right. Mil Mascaras was always seen as this great special attraction when he'd come to New York or, or what have you. Tito Santana was a major star in the WWF and the WWF throughout the late 70s through to the late 80s. And that's also taking account of their high Hispanic population, where they've always wanted to cause a certain amount of Mexican popularity. There are still Mexican heels, but I think they also like to paint more Mexicans as baby faces for more business potential. Do you think also in part it comes down to the style of wrestling as well? Yes. Because Mexican wrestling, traditionally from Western points of view, is very crowd-pleasing, very high-octane, and... Try as it might, Japanese rest never really endeared itself to the American masses or mm. the Western masses mm. in the same way that a high-flying luchador has. Luchador can be more pleasing to the eye. It's got more of a gymnastic quality to it, although Japanese wrestling did take that lucha influence, especially from Tiger Mask and then with the junior heavyweight star that evolved from those Tiger Mask Dynamite Kid wrestling matches, which clearly had a certain amount of Mexican Lucha Libre influence in mm. and I mean, Eddie Guerrero played Black Tiger. So. Yes, absolutely. Eddie Guerrero played Black Tiger, Negro Casas, uh, Silver King. They all had great runs in Japan. There were plenty of Mexicans doing great work in Japan. And, and by the late 90s, that hybrid, I suppose the the, the best proponents of it were New Japan Pro Wrestling in the late 90s with their Jap Lucha influence that was probably most popular in America in ECW where you had first the Dean Malenko Eddie Guerrero classics mid-90s and then in the late 90s the super crazy Yoshihiro Tajiri matches and that's where because the because I think the main reason is that especially in the 90s where the the cross-influencing was starting to take place and the tape trading was taking place, but also on a political scale, there were no great foreign menaces for America. After the Cold War, after the Berlin Wall came down, the only other great foreign menace they had was the Gulf War with Saddam Hussein, and that crashed and burned quite magnificently. That with the was brutal. Slaughter, with the sergeant slaughter ordeal. 
And that was the first sign of things starting to change. And Bismarck went back to the foreign menace well a couple of years later when Hulk Hogan had left and he needed a new hero. And just like how when Hulk Hogan first arrived, he took out the great Iranian menace in the Iron Sheik, when he tried to put everything behind Lex Luger, it was Lex Luger fighting the great Japanese menace of Yokozuna. But the difference with Yokozuna's portrayal of the Japanese menace is that it represented something different to Pearl Harbor for the first time. This is my interpretation of it. It was never explicitly stated. But I think that instead of it being the sneaky Japanese heel who attacked someone from behind, Yokozuna didn't attack wrestlers from behind. He was just there. He was this giant roadblock. He would batter his opponents after a match, famously giving the bonsai drop to Hulk Hogan and ending Hulkamania for eight, uh, for nine years in the WWE. But he didn't represent that. What he represented was the great economic might that Japan had in the early 90s when it felt at the time before they had that terrible crash and deflation for years in Japan that they still not entirely recovered from. There was that fear that the Japanese, as as a uh, that prophetic boy in the classic Simpsons episode "Last Exit to Springfield" said, "The unions will get greedy and the Japanese will eat us alive." The Japanese, those sandal-wearing goldfish tenders, but <laughs> it's harder. It's it, it's more. It's too. It's too sophisticated uh, depiction of the menace in that way for it to really strike a chord with the Americans like uh, like the, the great Japanese heels of the past, the Tojo Yamamotos and what have you. It was harder. You can't really get... You can get the fans in the 80s and the 60s, and 80s, 70s, 60s to go, boo, you Jap bastard. Boo, you commie bastard. But it's harder to get them to go, boo, you Japanese with your strong economic and work ethic. Boo for taking many of our industrial jobs and... Car production millions. Boo, I say. Do you not think, uh, on some level, to play devil's advocate, that you're adding context where context wasn't there? Perhaps, but Vince McMahon, maybe, maybe I'm reading more into it than you might think with Yokozuna, but they rarely said Pearl Harbor. The Japanese were a threat in that era, but for different non-military reasons. It didn't grab the audience like it could with the less visceral non-military style of confrontation and also who was the other great foreign menace in 1993 it was a bloke from finland (laughs) and all that he could have a go was america's poor domestic waste relocation policies because of their pollution and their illiteracy and that more snooty, less visceral an argument. I mean, who in the who in Britain, America, anywhere could point Finland out on a map? You can get the general gist of Scandinavia, but you couldn't say with great certainty which one was Finland there. I I know which one Finland is, but I wouldn't call myself geographically knowledge like average in terms of my knowledge. That was another quote, Mark, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> you don't want to know what Simon just mouthed at me with a quote mark attached to it. But the point is that after the Berlin Wall came down, in the 90s, America became much more insular. And that's where the... the almost they 
I'm wondering about this more as time goes on. It's more reflecting the Attitude Era, and I'll talk about it more in the Attitude Era. It almost had the air of the last days of Rome, as it starts to become more and more depraved, and as reflected in 1998, 1999, I guess maybe also coming to the end of the millennium, maybe there was more of apocalyptic in apocalypse in the air. But their concerns became domestic. The war on drugs, the war on crime, the president getting his dick sucked in the Oval Office... There weren't any great foreigners to concern themselves with, really. Well, Saddam Hussein at... was still around, but he was the least of Bill Clinton's worries. The, Bill Clinton was dropping bombs in <laughs> Yugoslavia and what have you, but he wasn't really putting troops on the ground as much anymore. Well, same with Somalia. Mm. Like, no real great commitment of men compared. Mm. And let's face it, not really... I mean, they, they didn't lose the Americans, but nor did they win. Mm. Yeah, but before, so before the, so after the Berlin Wall and before 9-11, there was no great clear foreign menace for America to feel that it was being against. And what America is defined as being against after 9-11 has been very confused, almost to the point that I think the main reason that a lot of people thought they were right in going into Iraq in 2003 was because they had to defeat some sort of beardy brown faces. Um, and that's why, and that's why I think Vince McMahon and Hollywood producers and everyone else is ecstatic that the Russians have decided to become evil again. Because it means they can start casting white people as the villains and it doesn't seem as racist anymore to do the foreign menace. Well, and that's I mean, where you get Rusev. Yeah, you've segued you've segued to Rusev, and he's a, he's a strange character because he's sort of the evolution of the foreign menace. He's yeah. sort of weirdly, almost panto, almost knowingly panto esque in his mm. grandiose displays of waving the Russian flag. Yes, and and, and with Lana's very over the top Russian accents. And, of course, they did get into trouble briefly, even though I think if Jon Stewart played along with it like he did on The Daily Show, I think that's a sign that maybe we shouldn't get to. People are too quick to get offended by anything these days. But to be fair, when the Ukrainian situation happened and the plane was shot down and Lana said, you blame Russia for current events, there was clear allusions there. Although, as far as Vince McMahon goes, that was a fairly subtle appropriation of the current headlines in order to make a quick buck. I mean, have you Um, ever seen Mohammed Hassan? (laughs) Well, we'll get to that. But, I mean, you've got Rusev, and Rusev isn't actually even Russian. He's a Ukrainian, or is he... He's not Bulgarian. He's Bulgarian. Bulgarian. I think the fact that he isn't... I think it's a good thing he isn't Ukrainian, because personally, if he was Ukrainian, it'd be a lot, A, a lot more awkward, the storyline now, or B, he just wouldn't have... he wouldn't have accepted it. I mean, they do have the right to refuse their storylines, and it would have been a very subtle tightrope that you would have had to have walked if he was Ukrainian, and it's, let's face it, professional wrestling does not have the writing calibre anymore to do that. Mm. We're coming more towards the modern day, and post 9-11, the portrayals of the foreign menace have been mixed fortunes. I mean, they've got, they've had La Resistance, that was quite an amusing... If you're making fun of the French, I don't think many people will ever get that offended by it, really, will they? Or the or the or the um, Quebecois, because frankly, 
the rest of Canada would be just as happy to boo those guys as the Americans. Um, but you had it with um, Alberto Del Rio. That's a very interesting variant on the uh, foreign menace. Uh, what you also have that I thought was interesting was Umaga. Umaga was a throwback to mm. that 60s, 70s, 80s wild Samoan Polynesian wrestler. I don't know whether it was just they marketed it more that he was channeling his past. I don't think they were... They weren't saying, like, with Kamala or with the Wild Samoans that they'd been brought from... That he'd been brought from the jungles of uh, Samoa. Samoa probably doesn't have jungles, does it? But he wasn't this wild savage that he's channeling these wild savages. Um, Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm misremembering that. But I don't think they were portraying him as if he couldn't talk. Just that he was choosing not to talk as a means to intimidate his opponents. In the same way that the Usos now use their chant at the start, their hacker, to embody their past and call upon their past as a means to try and help them win the match. I think Umaga and Rusev had, have very similar starts in terms of their career. Umaga's tailed off, um, except for... Well, after after his first loss, except for one of the best celebrity involvement matches you'll ever see on this yeah. earth. Umaga was great. Uh, he did his work perfectly, and he was the right level, really, as a monster that he always maintained, right up to the end with his feud with CM Punk, an air of he could win. If you put him in an elimination chamber match with Triple H and Shawn Michaels and John Cena, there was a chance he could win. Probably not. Similar to how Mark Henry was booked after his Hall of Pain initial run had been over, he was still seen as a threat. The Big Show will always be seen as a threat. You get beaten by the Big Show, even if you're Roman Reigns, it doesn't kill you stone dead. It's not helpful, but it doesn't kill you. Do you think Rusev will keep the same air around him? I mean, I know we don't like to focus on a certain like modern day character, a certain modern day like period, but I think it's a, because there's the build is so similar. Do you reckon he could do that? The thing is, back in the day, you could easily have built Rusev up, have him lose, and then send him off on his merry way. And a month later, he's down in Memphis, or he's in California, or he's in Portland, or he's in mid south. They can't do that anymore. They need to hold. They, they build Rusev and they keep him for as long as they can before they kill him off before they let him go. I think I uh, unfortunately I if I was to put my betting hat on because people are famously when people bet they wear a hat. I wouldn't be surprised if come WrestleMania 33 he's either in some nothing battle royal or he's not even on the roster anymore. They'll still find things for Lana to do. <laughs> but I don't I think Rusev might serve his purpose for them like Kozlov served his purpose. After they'd after he failed with them as the foreign menace, and then after he'd done his run as a comedy character, they had nothing left for him to do. Rusev is obviously a more talented man than Kozlov was, mm. so maybe they'll find more use for him, like a la Mark Henry. I think he will be sacrificed to the altar of Cena, unfortunately. One key difference with Rusev compared to a lot of other foreign menaces that I can think of. A foreign menaces with an entourage is that the entourage hasn't been, hasn't stepped into the ring yet. Mohammed Hassan had Davari step into the ring. Mr. Fuji would have physical things happen to him. Uh, Armando Estrada 
through Marga. He, mm-hmm. He'd end up getting uh, physical things happen to him. Most people, when they accompany a foreign menace, end up getting roughed up. Because La- I mean, think of it, partially because Lana's a woman, but you've not had a female. There's never been uh, like in the modern. There's not one in the modern day, and perhaps this is our generational gap, like le- leaping in here. But I can't think of one shining example in any major company where it's been a great American woman versus a foreign woman. You're right. There, there's probably is a good Lana and Rusev against a diva and another male wrestler storyline somewhere. I definitely think they have more. I think they have more ideas for what they'd like to do with Lana, both on screen and off, than <laughs> what they would like to do with Rusev after he's takes the fall against Cena, if he does. And the weird thing with Cena, the Cena feud, again we're dating ourselves, is that it's less the American against the, the Russian as much as it's the old man against the young powerhouse. Fuck, yeah. I mean, in a way, that's the Ivan Drago Apollo Creed feud. So if they do Apollo Creed, John Cena, then you could do something really interesting with Rusev. I don't think that they'd have the but Rusev, but Rusev and who? Because I well, don't. Well, I've always Rusev... said, I've always thought that Rusev could be the great. I always thought you could replay the Magnum TA Nikita Koloff storyline with Roman Reigns and Rusev. Look, I I don't want to put my I don't want to take off my betting cap and now put my booking cap on. But if I'd have been in charge of Roman Reigns. After they split the shield off, if even if they needed to split the shield up, I would have given him the U.S. title. I would have actually also given him the Intercontinental title. Unify those titles, blitz through the mid card, similar to what they did with John Cena with his U.S. title run back in 2004, and have him hold on to that belt until December, going through a person every month. Like a veteran, an up and comer, a veteran, an up and comer. You know, like your Christians and and those. Have Rusev beat him, then have Reigns eliminate Rusev at the Rumble, then have Reigns go on to win the world title, and then Rusev's right there as his first challenger. Interesting. That's how I would have booked Rusev. I would have booked Rusev maybe even going over John Cena at WrestleMania, and then taking on Roman Reigns maybe in the build-up to SummerSlam. Well, to be fair, who knows what the future holds. Yeah, Um, you don't want to be preemptive. This could be as embarrassing as the bunny eliminating Kane. You're not going to let that go, are you? I'm not going to let that go, no. Okay. um, (laughs) Oh, God, do we want to talk about Mohammed Hassan? Or do we want to just shake our heads? Because anyone who's listening to this knows about Mohammed Hassan. We mentioned him at the start. Yes. Um, I think the only thing we should say about Mohammed Hassan in great detail is that is how wrong you can do the foreign menace. He wasn't... He was the foreign menace within... He was meant. He kept claiming that he was an American, but that he was a Muslim American. It's look, look. Yeah, he was. Well, he was actually played by an Italian American. Yeah, that's like crazy. Again, just like how they got Hawaiians to Japanese, they got an Italian to play uh, a Muslim. But in the same way that Japanese Americans can still be viewed as the foreign menace because they have a different traditionalist set of values dating back years. Mm. The same way you could have a Japanese-American play the foreign menace now. It's the same thing. Um, because he's got such a different way of life, even though he is an American citizen, you could still count him as the foreign menace. So he is a foreign menace in my and they, and they also did that with Jinder Mahal. He wasn't a menace. Again, he was more an annoyance. And with the great Carly, technically yes. a foreign menace at the start. Yes. And that was, again, that was 
more mystical foreigner, I suppose, as you would say, that he needed a translator. He never spoke English. He was huge. He was, um, but again, his his size wasn't meant to represent the might of India. Although, if they ever do become economically powerful like China has become, that, that's another thing. They'll never put. I don't think they'll ever portray a Chinese wrestler as a foreign menace. They would love to have a Chinese wrestler that they could book like they book Rey Mysterio. Because if Rey Mysterio appears to the appeal to the Hispanic population, my God, if they could get a Chinese wrestler. I think you've just uh, in highlighted the entire reason that Great Carly ever held the world title right there. But mm. let's not get into that rant. That's, an, that's a story for another day. I think what it has come time for now is we, we've, we've given us given you several great examples and a couple of really terrible ones. So I think we're heading to our... We've, we've climbed the summit, and now we sit atop our Mount Rushmore. Mm. But rather than looking out, we're going to look down. We're yeah. going to look at who we're going to put as our heads on our Mount Rushmore statue. There is still more we could talk about. I mean, I would love... To, uh, I just want to quickly mention that maybe the uh, forerunner to the foreign menace no longer being in Amer- menace in America and being a rival was Jumbo Saruta's run in the AWA where he traded the world title with uh, Rick Martel. And now, just look at the foreigners in, Amer- in the WWE now. There's never been more foreigners in their roster. They've got a Swiss, they've got an Irishman, they've got an Englishman, they've got a Japanese wrestler in Hideo Itami, they've got Canadians, they've they've got more foreign performers now than ever before because they see themselves more as an internationalist brand. And that's something that we will say for another episode, the universal language of pro wrestling. But maybe the foreign menace, as it were, can never be like it was before. The only times that we'll ever see the foreign menace now will be in irony, in, in tongue-in-cheek, like Rusev is. So it's not even just post-9-11, and it's not post-political correctness. I guess it's that post-irony. The I, think po- are, I think it's, it's post-internet, more, isn't it's it? It's post-internet, yes. It is, it's post-internet. Definitely. So, but let's maybe go back through the annals of time and pick our Mount Rushmore of foreign menaces. Simon. Hit us with your four Mount Rushmore's as the great foreign menaces. Okay, um, I know he's, uh, know he's been featured a lot in this one, uh, mainly because he is the most recent example of it, and he's proved that it still does have other place, as we've established in this podcast. Rusev, mm-hmm. he's definitely in there. Uh, I like Yoko Zuna, uh as a good foreign menace because its size meets mysticism, meets villainy as well. And also, he's one of the few great heel champions in the history of the WWE. He carried that promotion as their champion for a lot longer than any heel did in that era. The only other heel that came close before him was superstar Billy Graham. And the first heel after him to have a great run with the title was probably Triple H. Mm, Disagree. Mm. Diesel's year-long run, near enough. He was a babyface throughout that whole run. Well... Uh, he wasn't. He just wasn't. because people weren't turning up doesn't because you know <laughs> people weren't turning up, but he wasn't being portrayed as a heel. He turned heel when he lost the title. I'm yeah. sorry, I'm gonna I'm gonna take the experience and uh, take you out with that one. Yeah, 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 young lion, your rookie oh, mistake there. I've been rolled up. I've been yeah. rolled up. Yeah. <laughs> you got distracted by some poorly cited Wikipedia article. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, Rusev, Yokozuna, two very good choices. I think I'm going to like sweep under and take steal one from you, but purely because of the way they're doing it, the Bullet Club. 
Yes, that's a very good choice. Um, if you can, if you can have groups, I'm having groups. Sorry, it's a, it's, it. I, I am co-presenter. I'm having groups. <laughs> <laughs> and one of the ones I like to say one one of the greatest ones, and I think I'm really going to annoy you now and take this is he only did it for a period, and we haven't mentioned him at all. But Bret Hart. Oh, okay. That's kind of ruined our Mount Rushmore, though, hasn't it? We were going to agree on one, weren't we? We were going to agree on one, Simon, weren't we? Um, all right, I'm going to have to try. We're going to have to try and persuade one another to give up one because my four are different to yours. So we're going to have to see who's going to crumble when we make our definitive one. I came close to choosing Yokozuna. To be fair to you, I'm going to go all across the con- all across the world. There are going to be two foreign menaces to Americans, but um. So the first American foreign menace, I'm going with Nikita Koloff. He was the great Russian evil wrestler, along with Ivan Koloff as well, I suppose. But he, I think his his legacy lives on longer. And he had better storylines. He had better feuds with Magnum TA. And his babyface turn, I think, was just showed how effective he was as a foreign menace. And he seemed to portray that Russian might better than Ivan Koloff did. I mean, Ivan Koloff was only like five foot eleven or something. Then I'm going to go. Uh, I'm going to go overseas. Now, you went with the Bullet Club. I'm going to go with who I think was the great Gaijin, and I think the one that they've always wanted to have, again, ever since, Stan Hansen. Stan Hansen made a career out of working in Japan, not just in the 80s. He ran through to the 90s and the noughties, and he still retained that tough Texan. He was the guy that would beat up their local Japanese natives with his hard lariats and so on, and he throw his bull rope into the crowd and attack fans if they came too close to him. So I'm going to put Stan Hansen as the great Gaijin. Um, then I'm going to go to Mexico. And do these even count as foreign menaces? I'm going to count them as far as menaces. Los Gringos Locos, because it was there in the name. The Love Machine Art Bar and Eddie Guerrero would cause damn near riots. And they would have to, they would have things thrown at them, knives put into them if they weren't too careful and they came to the ring in their American t- their stars and stripes tights to take on El Hijo del Santo and the tassels and they would speak in English in interviews and they were Hispanic but they were Americans because they were from Texas I believe, I mean Love Machine he was Texan as well I think but he seemed to speak English with a, an American accent from what I can recall but Eddie Guerrero famously Mexican but also grew up in Texas and I'm going to go back up to the states so I've done the full circle to me I think if you had an image of the foreigner in your mind this is the guy that you would have is the Iron Sheik not a great wrestler by any means but a great foreigner USA Hak Tu and he had the he was the guy that beat Bob Backlund he was the guy that Hulk Hogan overcame the the evil Iranian he had those, he had the, he brought the foreign mysticism with those weird weight bells that he'd swing around his head. So again, bringing something from a foreign culture. And he was intimidating and he was scary. And he had the Olympic creds. And he would sell out the garden, taking on the likes of Hogan and Bob Backlund. So those are my four. So if we're going to have a definitive one, one of us is going to have to give way. You have Rusev, Yokozuna, the Bullet Club, and Bret Hart. I have Stan Hansen, Nikita Koloff, Iron Sheik, and Los Gringos Locos. 
Now, my inflection may suggest which one I believe should be got rid of there. Okay, okay. Why, why, why do you think Bret Hart should have been should be dropped from my list? Because he wasn't a menace. He wasn't going against. He wasn't going against. He, there wasn't fear struck in him. Again, Americans didn't perceive Canadians as some great powerhouse. It was more they were being uh, criticised. They were being criticised in in a weird way, similar to how Ludwig Borger was criticising them for their um, personalities, not so much for the the nation. Yeah, but that, on the counter side of that, also I don't, I don't, I don't think Bret Hart is defined by his foreignness. All of those other wrestlers were defined by their foreignness within the the country they were forming. Throughout the majority would... of Bret Hart's run, it wasn't that he was the great Canadian wrestler or the evil Canadian wrestler. Stan Hansen was always the 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 scary guy, Jin. Nikita Koloff was nearly always the scary Russian menace. The Iron Sheik was always the great foreign menace. He never stopped being a heel. And Los Gringos Locos embodied a form of foreignness that angered Mexicans so much. But I think Los Gringos Locos best embodied a Mexican idea of the foreign menace. Okay, my counterpoints to that are while it wasn't like USA versus Canada in terms of like any political fun, it was definitely a social thing in terms of the way that Canadian politeness was kind of amped up to 11 even though they were like, portraying the bad guys in a way, the whole Heart Foundation at the time, because the reason he added that to his character was because of his frustration with the degenerates that um, were polluting his beloved professional wrestling. And it is that more Canadian politeness versus USA degeneratism and that kind of inverse snobbery, which does come sometimes mm. through foreign menaces, in the same way that uh, French people are perceived to be snobbish about any other form of cuisine. Okay, here's my rebuttal as well. Stan Hansen, Americans with Japanese. Yokozuna, Japanese with Americans. Nikita Koloff, Russians with Americans. Iron Sheik, Iran with Americans. Los Gringos Locos, Americans with Mexicans. Bullet Club, Americans with Japanese. And uh, Rusev, uh, Russians with Americans. They all have a military slant. They're all rooted in actual violence. Canada and America, I'm sure they had certain amounts of conflicts, but the War of 1812 was being fought between Brits and Americans about Canada. There's no great military history. And I think the foreign menace, frankly, is taking advantage. It, it, it's the carny nature of, the w, of, of wrestling that it's about making money off of conflicts and misery in a weird way and violence and death. Well, I could I can see your point, and whilst I still think there is a valid case to for Bret Hart to have... All right, I think he's got more foreign menace elements rather than outright foreign menace. Mm. So I, I will concede one, and I will okay. concede Bret Hart for... I think the Iron Shake is a great point, because yeah. he is... I think the reason, on top of everything else you've said, but he is the replacement for the lack of a Russian against Hogan. And he played that so well. Yeah. If you were to draw a picture of a foreigner in wrestling, I mean, the, the, the audio clip I'm putting before this episode is um, the foreign robot in Futurama when Bender joins the wrestling league. And he is dressed up. The closest that he has a similarity to is the Iron Sheik with his crazy passport. <laughs> so. Uh, the Iron Sheik, great character. And it's a, it, it is a great shout, so I will give you that one. I think this has been a 
damn good debate, Simon. And this was more of a debate than maybe our previous ones, especially the Mount Rushmore piece. Um, I'm, I'm very this happy. This is this is this, this is historical. It's the first time we've ever had this problem for Mount yeah. Rushmore. Yeah, where we had to, someone had to make a concession to the other one. So that's interesting. Maybe we'll become more conflicted. Maybe the feedback will say, "I like it when the two of you barely veil your hostility <laughs> towards one another's opinions more." I think it's especially the fact that I said it about Brett. I could tell. Okay. I could tell I'd, I'd needle no, it a little well, bit. Well, look, you saying Brett was one of the greats in, in something is never something I'm going to disagree with. And I wish we could have gone more into the Heart Foundation, that, that version of the foreign menace. But like I said, that was more the rivalry element of it. But we're, 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 we're repeating ourselves here. But we will repeat ourselves like we do at the end of every episode because if people want to get in touch with us outside of listening to us in the podcasts, Simon, how can people get in contact with you and what else can people look for if they want to get more of your views and opinions? Well, uh, people can contact me by um, pigeon mail. Uh, that's, that's usually a reliable method to get in touch with me uh, for, via, um, via our Facebook page, uh, via the Facebook page of my other uh, podcast, Mid-Table Crisis, with the great Sir Thomas of Patrick, uh, via my own personal Facebook page, if you really want to get that direct. Um, I have Twitter as well, Simon Cross Free, because I lack imagination. And Well, you lack a name that's, that very few people will have. Well, that's... Chance. If you want to do a Dave Gorman-like trip across the UK to find 54 Simon Crosses, I think it's possible. I am friends with at least two or three Simon Crosses. I had a period when I added people who had exactly the same name as me. I don't know why, but... And maybe if I took a trip to Ireland, I might find a few Lorcan Mullins knocking about the place. So that, that's, yep, that's your means. That's your Twitters and your podcasts and your Facebooks. That's everything covered. Uh, if you want to get in touch with me, my name's Lorcan Mullen, and that's my Twitter handle. That's L-O-R-C-A-N-M-U-L-L-A for Apple N. Um, if you want to learn more about my life as a wrestling fan, and as you can tell, I know far too much in my head is taken up with wrestling. I mean, I've, I've often said if you could re- eliminate all of the knowledge in my head of wrestling and movies and TV and music and put inside of it biology and chemistry and physics, we might have found a cure for cancer by now. <laughs> but unfortunately we don't. Um, but that's my Twitter handle. If you want to find out more about my time as a wrestling fan, then by all means go on Amazon and either get yourself a smartphone app of a Kindle or have an e-reader, an e-book on your hand, on your person and download a copy of Confessions of a Smart Wrestling Fan. I may put up a, a chapter. I may either have me read out a chapter or have you read out a chapter, Simon. I don't know how that sounds to you and give that as a well, free sample was... to some, uh, People not sure whether they want to drop their two ninety nine or whatever equivalent price it is in other countries. I'll be up for that. And also, because shameful as it is, um, as his co-presenter, I have yet to read this book. So what I'm going to do before our next podcast is I'm going to read your book. Uh, get to know thine enemy. Get to, know, get to know the enemy. And I might give a short, succinct review of it on the next podcast. That would be very kind of you, Simon, as long as that review includes the words fantabulous wonderful, and as if Dickens were still alive. <laughs> wow. Okay. I'm going to make you look really, really strong. Good man. Good man. You're going to put me over. <laughs> oh, oh, wow. I don't know yet. <laughs> I might hunt out for more money first. <laughs> but anyway, by all means, 
keep going. Subscribe to our SoundCloud page. That's soundcloud.com slash chess club rebels. All one word. If you listen to episode six, you'll find out where that name came from. And you'll have probably as big a laugh as Simon did when he realized what the <laughs> root of that weather dress is. Um, but for now, from me, Lorca Mullen. And from me, Simon Cross. It's Saramafaga Torikomo, or Farewell Grapple Fan. Sisters are natural enemies, like Englishmen and Scots, or Welshmen and Scots, or Japanese and Scots, or Scots and other Scots. Damn Scots! They ruined Scotland! You Scots sure are a contentious people. You just made an enemy for life!